Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with Alistair Roberts, James B. John, Jeff Myers, and Brian Moses doing the technical work. Uh, we're delighted today to have a special guest, uh, Pastor Ralph Smith, coming in from Tokyo. We've had Ralph on our program, on our podcast before. Early on in our series in Deuteronomy, we invited him to join us because he's written a book on Deuteronomy and therefore knows more about Deuteronomy than all the rest of us do. So we're delighted to have him back and uh, particularly to, delighted to have him here to talk about uh, the passage that we're looking at today, the end of uh, Deuteronomy chapter 21, which is a, a a section of Deuteronomy that he's spent a lot of time thinking about. We touched on it when we when he was here a number of months ago, uh, but it's good to have him and to get back and look at this uh, specific passage in some detail. Just to remind you where we are, we are in the uh, in a series of uh, studies of Deuteronomy. We're in the sixth word section of Deuteronomy, that is, laws that have to do with thou shalt not murder. As we've uh, noticed going through the section of Deuteronomy, that has a wide set of applications and a lot of different things come under the heading of that commandment. Uh, it includes rules for cities of refuge. It includes, of course, rules for war. Today, we're going to be looking at the end of chapter 21, which is uh, the uh, uh, a law about the stubborn and rebellious son, a law about uh, a body hanging on a tree, and uh, then uh, hopefully we'll get into the beginning of chapter 22, which has to do with uh, taking care of a neighbor's or a brother's property, uh, animals, especially when they're lost. So those are not the obvious applications of the sixth word, but those are the th- kinds of things that Deuteronomy highlights. Uh, I've pointed out a couple of times in our, my introductory comments that uh, Deuteronomy has some recurring terms that are established early on in Deuteronomy and then recur throughout the book. I've pointed, for example, to the use of the word there, which is not much of a, it's not very a colorful word in itself, but it's important in Deuteronomy 12, the Lord is going to set his name there. Those three words, set, name, there, all have the same consonants in Hebrew. And they are, uh, it's a, a phrase that establishes a resonance through the rest of the book. And uh, in, in Deuteronomy 12, it's the, the place of the Lord's name, the place of his dwelling. And then there are other places and theirs that occur throughout the book that are kind of extensions of what happens at the, uh, at the sanctuary. Uh, chapter 21 has one of these where in the section on the rebellious son, uh, they're said to uh, the, the parents are supposed to take him to his to the elders of the city, and to the gateway of his pl- gateway of his place. That's also a word that comes up in Deuteronomy twelve. The Lord is going to set his name at the place that he chooses, makom in the Hebrew. That's going that becomes a a key term that runs through the rest of the book, and uh, in this case, it's uh, again it's it's a kind of outpost of the judgments that are passed. At the central sanctuary, this is a judgment that's passed at the gate of a city that becomes a place of judgment, just as the as the tabernacle was, as the central sanctuary was. The other key term that occurs in this first little pericope is the word here. That, of course, is also a, a, a key term throughout Deuteronomy. Uh, that verb occurs four times in verses 18 through 21. Unfortunately, uh, the New American Standard, I suspect many other English versions, don't translate it as here. Sometimes it's translated as obey, sometimes as listen. It's, in each case, is shema, which means to hear. It's referring back to Deuteronomy 6 and the, and the call to Israel to hear. The rebellious son is a son that doesn't hear his parents. And even when they chastise him, he doesn't hear. The charge against him is that he doesn't hear. Uh, he's renounced the shemas, if you will. He's renounced the basic commandment that the Lord has given to Israel. But at the end of the end of the passage, verse 21, once he's executed, then Israel hears and fears. They hear what happened to him, and then they fear. So the son who was deaf to his parents uh, is turned over to the elders who execute him. The men of the city stone him to death. And then that incident opens the ears of the rest of Israel so that they will follow the Shema. They will tune their ears to the Lord's word and to the Lord's voice to their true father. So um, the word here occurs 90 sometimes in the book of Deuteronomy. It's a it's a book of the ear. And uh, particularly again in chapter six that that uh, established the Shema and then that 
that echoes and resonates throughout the book. But so that, that's something that we've pointed out with a, a number of terms that uh, that are recurring th- recurring in in the book of Deuteronomy, and I wanted to highlight those here at the beginning of our uh, of our time in this episode. Now, before we get into dig into chapter twenty one, I wanted to give Ralph a moment to talk about his work in Tokyo. He's been in Tokyo for decades. Uh, and has been administering in, in a church there. Uh, his son, Ben Zedek, has now taken over as the chief pastor of that church. And so there's uh, moving into a second generation phase of the work he's been doing. But I uh, just want to give Ralph an opportunity to uh, introduce yourself a little bit to those who don't know you uh, and to uh, talk about what's happening in Tokyo and with your church at the moment. Um, thank you, Peter. My wife and I have been here in uh uh, Tokyo, Japan, in the Mitaka Masashinoshi area since 1981. And uh, the ministry here has been greatly blessed of God. It's a small church. We have maybe 140 or 150 members, but many of our members are not near us so they're not always with us we have maybe a a hundred people every sunday that gather together and in god's grace and blessing ben zedek my first son is the pastor who is leading our church now and my second son barrack is a pastor nearby in an anglican church both of my sons are pastors here in japan the uh, ministry here is thriving in many ways, and we are thankful to God for his blessings upon us and look forward to see the church here grow and increase by the grace of God. What particular things do you think have given your church the uh, the, the longevity and I don't want to, I'll, I'll use the word success, I want to use that with a proviso that it's the Lord's blessing, as you've been emphasizing. But uh, what have you done that has attracted the group and has appealed to Japanese Japanese people? When we first got together, it was just, uh, you know, my wife and me and our children and my wife's older brother and his wife and his children and my wife's mother there were seven of us uh, and we began to worship together, but we ate lunch together every week, naturally. Okay. You know, worship services over, it's just a small group of people. So we ate lunch, but however much the group grew, we, we always ate lunch together every week. So we had a fellowship. We had worship and fellowship. Uh, you know, Peter, Let's keep this a secret just between you and me, okay? Okay, yeah. I won't tell anybody. Okay. When when we first began worship, what we had was we sang a song and prayed, and then we had an hour or 90-minute sermon, and then we prayed again, and it's over. That's it. Yeah. Our liturgy, you might call primitive. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And... Over the years, uh, God led us to have a, a more biblically informed liturgy, uh, partially because of the uh, influence of, uh, not partially, mainly because of the influence of James Jordan and Jeff Myers and uh, you. So our our liturgy was developed and i'm i am thankful every week when we do worship together that the children are taking communion together with us Mm. and the children stand together with us and the children confess together with us okay there's this little girl uh she's maybe four or five years old okay and when I look at the Japanese liturgy, I have to I have to look at the words and read them. But this little girl standing sometimes right in front of me, she doesn't have to look at anything. She has it all memorized. Mm-hmm. 
you may not remember this, Peter, but I'm 74 years old. So uh -huh. I, I do not memorize anything. <laughs> <laughs> I, I vaguely remember my name, but anyway, so when I'm, when I'm going through the liturgy, this little, you know, girl standing in front of me, she's doing it all. And, and we look at each other face to face, right? And we're going through the liturgy, and and it's a great joy to me that we have a liturgy that is um, where the pastor speaks and the people respond, and the children are one hundred percent part of the whole worship service. That to me is a great blessing. And then we take the communion. Okay, <laughs> we have these little kids who are so enthusiastic about drinking every single drop <laughs> the little wine cup that they have we we do these pathetically small wine cups but the children they 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 stick their tongue in and they drink the wine to the bottom of the cup and what a blessing to see children enthusiastically participating in every aspect of worship and taking communion together with us, okay? So that it's it's one body and it's such a great blessing every Sunday. And I I laugh in my heart when I see the little children participating like they do. Yeah, and you have you're in a second generation phase with uh, the leadership of the church. Yes. Uh, has that been true of the membership too? Have you had uh, folks, children grow up in the church, remain in yes. that area of yeah. Tokyo, and yeah. remain part of the church? Yes. Yeah. Um, the uh, Most of the people, I, I think it's fair to say, most of the people in our church are second generation. Uh -huh. yeah. And we have a whole, uh, my wife has all the statistics and I don't have it, okay? We have a number of, we we have one or two people in their 90s and a few people in their 80s and uh, quite a few of us like myself in their 70s and then 60s but then uh 50s and 40s and and so on it's a yeah. it, it we have a, a church that has been blessed generationally yes yeah yeah that's great uh would love to take a whole hour just to talk to you about uh, about your yes. ministry in Tokyo, but uh, uh, why don't we? Why don't you kick us off with the discussion of the uh, the rebellious son portion? I know that you've spent a lot of time thinking about this, and uh, maybe just get us started by uh, highlighting some of the things that you think are crucial for understanding this this part of Deuteronomy. Um, you know, it's so. Uh, interesting to me okay or strange to me okay that this passage about the rebellious son is comes up often in people who are attacking christianity and the law of moses as if the uh deuteronomy 21 18 following is talking about a boy like a little boy who happens to be mischievous and that is not at all what is going on here. But uh, the the literal aspect of the law, and and Calvin talks about this in his sermons on Deuteronomy, the the literal aspect of the law uh, would would how do you say it's it's almost irrelevant. Uh, Fathers and mothers would not bring their son before the elders unless the son, and he, he's a glutton and a drunkard. You know, that's not a child. This is, you know, grown-up man. But, but even when a grown-up son is really stupid and rebellious, fathers and mothers don't bring them before the elders unless the case is really, really extreme. So the, the law in about the rebellious son in Deuteronomy uh, 21 is not really about something that we're supposed to think about in a practical, psychological 
sociological way. Israel was the rebellious son against God. Israel rebelled against God constantly. Israel was God's beloved son. God loved Israel, and he led his son out of Egypt, but the son of God, Israel, was stubborn and rebellious, and, and that language, uh, uh, I have a little book, short book, that talks about this, okay, published by Athanasius Press, and I go into the, to the language, the details of the language, but at any rate, it was the people of Israel who were the stubborn son of God, and the what is the most profound and uh, devastating irony in all of this is that Moses and Aaron are the ones who were stubborn and rebellious against God. You remember in in uh, the book of Numbers when uh, they rebelled against God. So the, the, the quintessential stubborn and rebellious sons were Moses and Aaron. How could that be? But Israel as a whole was rebellious against God. And then in the Gospels, you know, Jesus is condemned by the Pharisees as the rebellious son. Jesus fulfills, like in your commentary in Matthew, right? Jesus fulfills everything that it means to be Israel. Jesus is baptized in identifying with the people of Israel, identifying with uh, the rebellious Son of God. And then Jesus himself is accused by the Pharisees of being a glutton and a friend of sinners and tax collectors. And then Jesus dies as the rebellious son, taking because he identifies with the rebellious son. So the the this short passage in the book of Deuteronomy uh, is is filled with iron irony because how could Moses and Aaron the greatest men of their day be the rebellious sons, but they are. And I think that shows the uh, the flesh, like in, in your book. Oh, dear. I forgot the title. Anyway, you wrote a book, right? <laughs> yes, I wrote a book. <laughs> about, that talks about flesh and so on, right? Oh, yeah. Delivered from the elements of the world, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Okay, so... Moses and Aaron epitomize what it means to be flesh. But they, they are the greatest men of their age. They are Adamic. They epitomize the, the failure of Adamic flesh. And how that is uh, just devastating to see how that works out in the book of Deuteronomy. And then... Jesus takes all of that upon himself. He becomes Israel, and he dies as the rebellious son. I want to respond to a couple of things. I just I want to make sure the other guys roll in here and start to start talking as well. I want to stick with the literal level for a moment, and you're taking it primarily as typological because the scenario that's being depicted is seems a psychologically unlikely one. Parents would not be likely to hand over a son to their uh, to the elders for possible execution. But I guess a couple of levels of response to that. One is um, it seems like we can still draw some conclusions about like juvenile delinquency, for example, and what uh, is appropriate to be done for sons who are who who are uncontrollable by their parents. I think it also Christopher Wright makes the point that this is a uh, highlights limits of the family. If the family has an uncontrollable son, 
uh, they can't execute the son themselves. It's not the father's prerogative to put his own son to death. He has to hand him over to another authority, and that other authority has to pass judgment about it. So there's some, even if you take it as typological, there's still some practical kind of legal and moral dimensions that you might that you might draw out of it. Yeah, I've wondered about that too. Um, and maybe Ralph had some comment on this. That is, yeah, no father or mother would willingly give up their their child, their their son, uh, no matter how old he is, even if he just laid around the house. But and even if there's a lot of incorrigible behavior, but there's it seems to be an imperative here is when this happens, his father and mother shall seize him and bring him to the elders of the city. Um, so uh, it, perhaps this has become a situation where life in the household is intolerable with this man living with them, and this is a last resort. I think that's the way it's usually taken. Um, does that make sense? Yes, but Eli... Eli had sons that were horrible, absolutely horrible. They fit the pattern of uh, this passage, and Eli would not prosecute them. Now, I think that the, the Bible condemns Eli for not doing it, but I think Eli would be a typical parent, and that's part of the uh, practical difficulty here, huh? Yeah, I, I guess I'd read that as um, just another indication of Eli's unfaithfulness, because the, the, the fact that he doesn't restrain them is the thing that he's condemned for. Is he even trying to do what these parents are doing? They say yeah. they chastise him, and he still won't listen, but it doesn't seem like Eli. Eli does does correct them in some uh, mild way, but uh, it's that it's that failure to chastise and correct that's that he's condemned for. So yeah. uh, maybe that's a good example of a case where he should have he should have done what Deuteronomy twenty one requires because he, yeah. as you said, these are not children. Yeah. Uh, so Huffman and Phineas, are, they're 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 full grown. They're operating in the tabernacle. They become exactly the kind of people that uh, this this uh, law seems designed for. And then Samuel's sons seem to be the same too. Right. Right. Yeah. And I mean, David has sons. Uh, you know, David has uh, Amnon that he doesn't uh, uh, that he doesn't punish. He's got Absalom that gets away with gets away with things in his household. So, you know, all through all through the Book of Samuel, you have that uh, the rebellious son. I think you're right, Ralph. That uh, the in each case we're looking at rebellious sons that represent the rebellion of Israel, and the the language of stubborn and rebellious is used almost exclusively throughout the Old Testament to refer to Israel. Yes. Um, in the in the prophets and in the psalms that's that's yeah, a yeah. that's a combination that's uh, applied to to Yahweh's son primarily yeah uh, so I, I think that i think that allegorical typological dimension is is certainly there there is reference in proverbs to um gluttonous and drunker drunk son, a, a warning against the son of solomon not to grow up and be a drunkard and a glutton we, we take that uh, not just to refer to Israel, but also just to uh, parenting. And uh, now back back to this question about what Wright says about there, there are limits on family authority, if you will, or, 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 or um, just in terms of discipline. You know, when we first started this a study on Deuteronomy, I think we referred to, I think it was Jim Jordan's recommendation or his dream that every Presbyterian elder, before they became an elder, would be taken through the law of God, uh, whether it's the law of the covenant in Exodus or Deuteronomy, and just kind of work through it and kind of learn it and get it in his mind and heart and consciousness. Um, so I guess what I'm wondering here is when, let's say, a lay elder reads this, what what is he supposed to take away? Maybe in the language of what is um, Westminster Confession 19? Uh, what's the general equity here when it comes to ruling uh, the church? You know, we have ecclesiastical kind of dimension. What it, it does it does it mean uh, at least that sometimes elders have a place 
in the discipline of children who are incorrigible? Does it also mean that parents have a responsibility sometimes, even if it doesn't get this bad, to bring uh, rebellious children before the session for their adjudication, for their evaluation? Uh, I'm just wondering about that. It's like practical applications to this particular law. But, but, but Jeff, um, the, the law says that the son is a glutton and a drunkard, and the, I, I don't think we're talking about children. When you use the word children, you know, I think of somebody 14 years old or younger, okay? And for the son to be a glutton and a drunkard and for the parents to be totally unable to control him, I think we're, uh, I think the law is uh, speaking in terms of the sociological, practical aspects of things, of a man who is 18 or 20 or even 30, okay? He won't work. He gets drunk. He comes home, and he is a tyrant in the home, and the father and mother cannot do anything to control him. The situation, uh, uh, trying to think practically speaking, has to be so bad that the father and mother go to the elders for help. We're not talking about a child. Granted, I'm sorry, Ralph. I I was referring to children in a more generic sense. Yeah, I I certainly understand that. And there are, truth be told, a lot of older men living with parents these days. Uh, and that situation in itself seems to encourage a life of dissipation uh, and even rebellion. So maybe that's uh, an application, one of the applications I'm looking for. Um, but I was just thinking just more in general about the relationship yeah. between elders and and parents in um, the home. Uh, is there something we can say just about that? Yeah, I think that I would say yes. Uh, and I, th I think you can make this make a case in various from various. You can make a case in various ways for this. But to quote our uh, uh, our great sage uh, Hillary Clinton, it does take a village. It takes a community of people. It takes community of people to raise, raise children. This is something that uh, Noel and I discovered over time. I think that early on we would have resisted the idea that we should, you know, that our our kids needed the input and the discipline of somebody other than the two of us. But over time, we realized that there were things that we we didn't handle very well. There were dynamics in the family, dynamics with certain kids that it was better for an outsider to address. So as a parent, I, I, you know, I, that's been the case with us. And, and as a pastor, parents have brought their kids to me and here I'm, I'm talking about children. It's not this, it's not the situation that's described here, but it's a situation where there's a child who's has fits of rage, for example, and the parents as, as part of the kind of reinforcement of how serious uh, these, the sin is, uh, they want they want the child to confess it to me as pastor. That's happened to me, so I think that I think that that level of application I think is is valid. It doesn't. It's not an. Uh, I've never had parents bring a child or a a, a young man in their family to the elders and charge him with an excommunicable offense. I haven't ha I haven't seen that happen, which is the the more directly equivalent thing. But the lower level thing, I think that's. I think the uh, the the equity of the the equity of the law does encourage that kind of uh, appeal to authorities outside of the family. You earlier mentioned Peter the connection between this law and various stories of Scripture, the story of Eli, the story of um, of David and his sons, and these cases of rebellious children. Um, often there's a lot more going on within them. The death of Hop. Nye and Phineas on the same day in the Battle of Apex stands for a larger national disaster. And in the case of David, on account of his sin, he loses um, a number of his sons in consequence. But also Absalom's death is presented as particularly representative. Absalom's described as um, without blemish from head to toe. He's shorn every year. He's connected with sheep shearing. He's um, caught by his head in the thicket, and he, in many ways, is the substitute, the 
the lamb that's offered instead of his his father, but as the rebellious son. And it seems that this um, maybe connects this law and the law that follows concerning the um, person who's hung on the tree, because of course Christ is in um, various ways in Matthew, we could see a parallel between the story of Absalom and his rebellion and the story of the crucifixion with Ahithophel being Judas and Christ as the son of David being Absalom, dying for the line of David and as the one who's been accused of being the rebellious son, but in this case, the faithful son. And so in these cases, I think we're seeing that these laws are not merely operating at that literal level, although they do operate at that literal level. Um, but there's also this symbolic aspect in it that is explored in great detail in the text of Scripture. This is something that provides some of the deeper sacrificial, even, grammar of the text. Gary North raised the question of what exactly this uh, this son is guilty of. He's called a glutton and a drunkard. Gluttony and drunkenness are disruptive, but there's nowhere else in uh, in Scripture that treats those as capital crimes, certainly. He is stubborn and rebellious. He doesn't listen to his parents. North that doesn't think he's actually been violent because he thinks if the son had been violent, then he would be dealt with under other rules. And they wouldn't you wouldn't need this special rule for the a stubborn and rebellious son who's actually attacking his parents. And North ends up suggesting that what's happening is uh, kind of twofold. One is that the the son is consuming the substance of the family. He's a glutton and a drunkard, so he's consuming the the capital of the family, and therefore poses a danger to the family's future in that regard. Poses a danger, perhaps, to other members, uh, uh, other the flourishing of other members of the family. Uh, and because of he's uncontrolled, he poses a danger because he's. You know, if he's out in public and he's doing, he, he's a glutton and a drunkard out in public. Uh, what's going to be the consequence of that? What kind of thing is he going to do that will bring bring consequences for the entire family? So the more general point that North makes is that it's a kind of implied attack on the family's life and health. That's what he's being. That's what he's being judged and condemned for, not the specific acts of being a glutton or uh, uh, a uh, drunkard, but the the more general consequences that his behavior has uh, for the family. Thoughts on that uh, as a as a way of, again, still still thinking in terms of the literal sense of the of the law. Does that seem right or do you think he's would you uh, assume that the, this uh, this uh, rebellious man has been violent and has attacked members of his family, perhaps his parents? So you have to come to grips in some way with verse 21 where there's a, a public participation in the death of this son, all the men of the city, and then the statement, purging the evil from your midst so that all Israel can hear and fear. So North seems to be correct in saying it can't just be that he drinks too much and he eats too much. You have to ask what's going on. And Maybe the answer then would be, this man is such a bad influence, or he's he's not bearing the name of Yahweh. He's not acting the part of a son. He's not just not doing something, but he's actually doing things that are bringing shame and disgrace by living this uh, empty, vain kind of lifestyle. Something like that, maybe. Yeah, and and the participation of the the uh, men of the city might suggest that he's also a, a danger to the city as a whole. Again, maybe a physical danger, but maybe a reputational danger too. I also wonder if uh, if you can extend this. Uh, uh, I think Ralph is exactly right in his opening comments that this is you feed this into the Gospels, and G this is the charge that's brought against Jesus. Uh, he's uh, identified as the stubborn and rebellious son the drunkard and the glutton, even though he's not, but he bears that charge and he goes to the cross as the, uh, as the substitute son for son Israel. So I think that's, that's the direction that the, uh, 
the typology goes. I think that's right. But I wonder if there's also a, you think about um, if this is Israel, uh, is it Israel among the nations, perhaps? Is it Israel being stubborn and rebellious in the face of Yahweh, but also uh, in kind of the the public realm of the nations who are, as Paul says, blaspheming God on account of Israel's conduct? Uh, and so that would that would feed into a kind of the Lord Himself takes them out of the outside the gates. The Lord Himself takes them out of the land. The Lord Himself puts Israel to death, as it were, in exile in order to raise them back up. Because um, it might be there not just an allegory or typology of the cross, but also an allegory of Israel's own conduct uh, before before the Gentiles. Well, since no one else is speaking up, let me just add this: in Mark seven, Jesus remember. Uh, in responding to the, the Pharisees who uh, rebuke the disciples for eating uh, grain on the Sabbath, all that. Jesus refers to the Exodus 21 passage about uh, the death penalty for one who curses his father and, father and mother. But then he goes on to, to link that with the way uh, a the way a son or a daughter can uh, bring dishonor and financial ruin upon his parents uh, by uh, designating certain money to the treasury calling it of the of the temple calling it korban and the pharisees then accepting that and letting them loose and there seems to be this correlation between you know that's like cursing your 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 father and mother and remember jesus says cursing your father and mother uh can lead to uh capital punishment so so this kind of lifestyle would be that's described here in Deuteronomy 29. It could be thought of as cursing your father and mother, and then also cursing your father, Yahweh, which demands a pretty serious penalty. I think we move on to the next uh, the next uh, couple of verses at the end of chapter 21. Verses 22 and 23 are a rule about leaving a corpse lodging in a tree overnight Alistair has already mentioned this as uh, uh, this is the, uh, you know, there's a, the cross is being foreshadowed here. Paul makes this explicit and, and quotes from uh, verse 23 in Galatians. Jesus becomes a curse for us because cursed is one who hangs on a tree. And that's the sign that the fact that Jesus is hanging on a tree in his death is a sign that he's bearing the curse. Uh, you have uh, at least to that extent, you have a connection be between the, the rebellious son rule and the, the corpse in the tree rule, because both of them kind of come to uh, resolution in Jesus, and both of them have to do with Jesus uh, substituting and taking the curse and the punishment that Israel deserves on himself and going to the cross on their behalf. One of the questions I had about this uh, this particular rule is that it's it seems that the uh, defilement happens overnight and not during the day. So the corpse shall not hang all night on the tree. You shall surely bury him the same day. So if, if somebody's executed at the beginning of the day and is hung up, exposed, this is not hanging in the sense that in the modern sense of hanging by his neck, but this is exposure that a body is impaled after being killed in some other fashion in all likelihood. That's what be, what's envisioned, but that, that corpse can stay visible and in the open throughout the entire day, but then at nightfall, it has to be taken down. So is that right? Is there something, a, a connection between the corpse overnight that makes it defiling? Uh, and if that's the case, uh, what what's the connection? Why would that be? Yeah, Peter, I don't know, um, is, is my initial um, instinct, not that's very helpful, but just to kind of throw in another kind of unexpected um, aspect of this whole hanging penalty it just seems to me that it's not a very israelite um way of killing people so you often have stoning referred to kind of elsewhere i mean this uh in in the pentateuch um you have sort of stoning as the normal penalty and this then is introduced kind of not almost as a command but as an like if if someone is um uh, committing a crime punishable by death and you know you, you happen to hang him on a tree so in the context of the law it's slightly unusual and and then thinking about when people do 
get hanged. I mean, Joshua um, and the Israelites hang various people when they go into the promised uh, promised land, but it's Gentiles. Um, when I think Saul and um, uh, various other people are, are hung in Samuel, I th- think it's the Philistines um, who who do it. Kind of Saul and, and Jonathan are, um, are, are hung. Obviously, um, Haman is is hung. It, it, it doesn't seem to have much to do with um, Israel, and and so that just kind of strikes me as a slightly um, interesting thing to throw into the works as well. The interesting case there would be Rizpah, Saul's concubine, and the hanging of the um, descendants of Saul by the Gibeonites in um, 2 Samuel 21, because they're left there um, until the um, beginning of the, um, is it the beginning of the barley harvest? Um, I can't recall, but they're they're left hanging for quite some period of time. Yeah, they are. And, and, And the Gibeonites are kind of the interesting case because they're kind of non-israelite but then grafted into israel um in a, in an unusual way aren't they yeah and i'm looking at second uh, samuel 21 which is that account of rispa and verse 9 says uh the king david gave them into the hands of the gibeonites and they hanged them in the mountain before yahweh so these um sons of sons of saul are handed over gibeonites uh, yeah as you say kind of ambiguous status within Israel, but still a Gentile people. So I'm not sure that that entirely is a, in the, is exceptional to the case you were making, James. So what's your conclusion from that? I, d- I didn't have a conclusion. I, I was hoping someone would, um, would, would provide that. Yeah, I think, I mean, if you, if you extend this into the New Testament and think of the cross as uh, the fulfillment of this hanging on a tree, obviously it's a Roman method of ex- execution, not a Jewish method of execution. Stoning is still the method of execution. Uh, in the book of Acts, Stephen is stoned, and a couple of places in the Gospels, the Jewish opponents of Jesus are taking up stones to stone him. So in the New Testament, too, it's a Gentile way of executing. Maybe then part of the import could be the way in which Jesus then very literally does um, die the death of, of an outcast from Israel, someone who's almost been kind of excommunicated from Israel and, and almost dies a, a death more suited to a Gentile. I mean, obviously the, um, you know, we, we've spoken about the way in which Jesus goes to the cross as the, you know, typologically as the glutton and the drunkard. And th- there seems to be some extra things we could pull out of that. I mean, um, there's something declarative, isn't there, about the, um, where are we, verse um, 20, you know, they're, they're to go to a public place, to the gate of, of the city and and declare, you know, this our son is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. You know, he is a glutton and a drunkard. And you could then think of the accusations brought against um, Jesus as kind of having that sort of, I don't know what the right um, word for it is almost having a character of imputation. Um, Israel, in a very um, metaphorical sense, I guess, put their sins upon him. They, they the rebellious son, level that accusation um, against him. Um, he then goes to the cross, um, suffering that punishment. The the twist, I guess, the sort of sting in the tail is that you take the body down precisely so the land um won't be defiled, won't get this um, blood guilt that we've thought about in the first half of chapter 21 um, uh, on its account. Of course, Jesus' death was itself an injustice in in a sense. He wasn't that um, uh, glutton. And and so his death did bring blood guilt upon the land um, of Israel. In in a sense, um, it falls into the category of the first half of Deuteronomy um, 21 rather than the second half Jesus's blood becomes kind of unatoned for blood on Israel's hands which of course is just sort of the whole backdrop for the gospel as it goes forth in uh the book of Acts you know as Peter preaches he, he talks about the way in which Israel has this blood on their hands and and, and so it, it seems to be um yeah kind of fusing together in, in in some quite kind of um intricate way the two halves of this chapter 
Yeah, that's very interesting. Uh, I, I want to get back to your comment about uh, Jesus being condemned as an outcast. Uh, that that makes sense in terms of the gospel uh, narrative and the logic of the gospel that he's cast out of Israel, given to the Gentiles. He dies outside of the gates of the city of Jerusalem, and he dies by a method that Israel would not use, but by a Gentile method. That doesn't fit what uh, Deuteronomy 21 says, though, because this is a man committed a sin worthy of death. He is put to death. That's that's an execution. And I'd take the hanging, uh, verse 22 and 23, the hanging is not the method of execution per se. This is not crucifixion, I don't think, nor even, as I said, hanging by the neck, but exposure. So uh, that, I think, connects with the idea that this is the one who's hanged and exposed is cursed. Uh, one of the ways that the curse of the covenant is portrayed is the, uh, you know, when when the curse comes in full force on Israel, they're defeated by their enemies, and they're so utterly defeated that there's not even somebody to care for the dead and to bury the dead. And so the bodies of the of Israel are left in the cities as food for dogs and in the fields as food for birds of the air. And I take it that that's the, that's the kind of curse that's in view here. You take a dead body and you expose it on a tree, then uh, it's going to be, it's food for those carrion uh, birds and beasts. And it's a, you know, it's an over and above the death itself. It's a, it's a curse that's uh, imposed on the person, but uh, this is not, this may be somebody who's been cast out, but it's not, it's not the Gentiles who are performing it. So yeah, it, it's still, I think James, your, your puzzle that you raised is still there that uh, when would this, when would this happen? Are there cases uh, where we, the ones that we, the ones that we've identified, but there are cases where Israel is, Israelites are either commanded or they actually do expose dead bodies in this fashion. And and I, I'm having a hard time thinking of good examples of that. And I also wanted to go back to my original question and see if anybody had any thoughts on what is the, is it the fact that the evening begins a new day and the dead body shouldn't remain on the, on the tree through a, a second day? It has to be removed and buried on on the day in which it's executed i mean you, you have you have uh, uh james brought at the beginning of the chapter where you have uh, a corpse that's uh, found lying on the land contact with the land that defiles the land and that has that's already defiled and it needs to the defilement needs to be removed here you have uh, a corpse that is suspended it's up in the air it's not it's not uh in contact with the land, and yet the land is in danger of defiling. So this is a preventive action. The land has not yet been defiled. It would be defiled if the corpse was hanging on the tree overnight, but it's not defiled as long as it's taken down. Uh, but it's defiling. You know, it's defiling from a distance. It's defiling from above the of the land instead of by contact with the land. Uh, and the way that that's dealt with is by putting the body under the earth. So you have. If you have a dead body, you want to put it under the earth, then it won't defile. If it's lying on the earth, it defiles. If it's up on uh, in the air hanging from a tree, it defiles. Uh, and the defilement, it feels a little bit like the rules of Numbers 19, where you have um, a corpse that defiles the space around it. Uh, you don't have to touch a corpse in order to get defiled. You just walk into a room where there is a corpse, and you get defiled by that. And this seems to have something like a similar logic going on a dead body that doesn't actually isn't actually in contact with the land is still filling the land with uh, potentially with defilement. Perhaps one way to answer that question is to ask a previous question. What is the logic of hanging the man? So if he's not executed by means of hanging, if he's just presented publicly on a tree, whether impaled or, or strung up, What's the point of that? Uh, why do that? Uh, what's the logic behind doing that? Perhaps it's that's related to why he should be taken down, uh, you know, so he doesn't hang there the next day. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, are we looking at something that's uh, similar to a uh, some kind of propitiatory act? So the the execution is carried out, but then. Uh, before whom is the person hung? Is the person is the body hung before the Lord, as proof that the body that the execution has been carried out, uh, that the land has been purged, 
that case, you'd think that it would happen every time that uh, somebody was executed. Is it, again, a, uh, a further cursing of the body above and beyond the mere death, but uh, exposure of the body? Uh, so, yeah. Um, or, or is it deterrence? Is this a public right. spectacle so that people can see and fear? Uh, that seems to be the case in other hangings uh, that we've mentioned already in, in, in Scripture. Yeah, and that's certainly part of the rationale of crucifixion in the ancient world and in, in the Roman world. You have uh, crucifixion is often imposed for slaves and slave rebellions. You expose the re- rebels in order to send a message to all future rebels that this this is where you're going to end up if you try to if you try to lift yourself up too high, you're going to end up lifted up in a way that you don't want to be lifted up. Well, um, I think we've run aground on that, uh, on those couple of verses. Let's move on to the first part of chapter 22 uh, for the last part of this episode. Uh, this goes in a, in a very different direction. I, one, of, one of the puzzles that I've been, haven't resolved is the, the movement of this, part of, the, of this part of Deuteronomy, uh, moving from one law to the next. Uh, Alistair suggested a connection between the rebellious son and the, the body hanging on the tree. That, that makes sense. But then, how do you get from that into the, what, the beginning of uh, beginning of chapter twenty two? That that transition seems pretty abrupt, because here what you have is a still under the sixth word section of Deuteronomy, but here it's a protection of property. If you find your neighbor's your brother's animal that's straying, you're responsible to uh, take care of the animal. Uh, if need be, you take the animal home with you until the owner shows up. Anything you find of his. You have to recover and preserve for him until he comes to get it. You can't take it for yourself. It's not finders keepers, and you can't, you can't ignore it either. So it's this under the sixth six word heading because it's a it's kind of a it's a it's a positive flip side of do not murder. You preserve your neighbor's life. In this case, you learn or it seems that you're preserving your neighbor's life by preserving his livelihood. He needs his ox and his sheep, his donkey, in order to work his land, in order to produce the things that he takes to the market and uh, for him to be deprived of that uh, those uh, uh, that productive capital is uh, would be not just a, not just theft but it would be an attack on his life and so you preserve his life by preserving his animals I wonder if one thing to note here could be the fact that when Jesus applies this um, to his situation to his um, accusation by the um, Pharisees, it is in the context of the loss or the saving of human life. So, I mean, in, in Matthew um, 12, he has um, healed, he has saved life and, and and asked, you know, which of you having a, a donkey or, or, or an ox doesn't kind of pull it out of a, of a ditch. Um, and in response, they sought to de- destroy him. Um, so th- they kind of plotted Jesus' death. And I, I, th- I think I'm, right in saying this i think that in luke 14 where the same um where a similar quote from jesus comes up it, it reads i think having a son um or an ox that's fallen into a um a ditch or it might be a well um there, there in luke and so uh, i don't know quite what follows from that but jesus certainly seems to make the application to the loss of human life and, and takes it well beyond the realm of just kind of properties and and animals and so on yes there are two parallel events of healing on the sabbath both of which are connected to the first of all the ox or the sun in the ditch in i think that's in chapter 14 and then the earlier one in chapter 13 is the ox or the donkey that need to be led away to water the first one seems to go better with the man healed from job dropsy in the second account um which is another one of the strange connections whereas the um the other with the um the woman who's healed from the disabling spirit in chapter 13 so it would be an example of being your brother's keeper in a fuller sense as the alternative to the original murder perhaps that the murderous intent of cain was seen in his refusal to consider himself as his brother's keeper. And so the alternative to murder is to see oneself as truly one's brother's keeper, not just of his life, but also of his property. 
and that is analogized analogized to um the concern for the ox or donkey um by Christ and his healing of of people on the sabbath yeah i think that's i think that's right this is uh, this applies to people cuz i mean wandering animals you also have people that wander that language is used in deuteronomy so if you see some uh, person who is wandering um wandering after other gods uh if you uh, see somebody who has fallen uh that could be you, you know kind of morally spiritually fallen uh, you can think of it in terms of fallen from uh prosperity somebody who's wandering and is uh homeless i think that those kinds of situations that it's kind of a good Samaritan rule that applies in the first instance to animals. That's the way the law is framed, but God is not just concerned about animals. He's concerned about people. And so there's an obligation to restore wandering people as well as wandering animals and to uh, care for fallen people as well as fallen animals. And, and possibly there is a link. I mean, there's obviously the link that Jesus is, making that if if you would do that on a uh, sabbath if you would seek to preserve animal life then you should clearly seek to preserve human um, life so that's clear but perhaps then there's the implication in the other direction that the kind of people who are um cruel with respect to um animals and do nothing to sort of preserve animal life that that will eventually grow into just a a, a lack of concern for human life you know the, these things don't just happen overnight and um I, I wonder if we could even link it back then to the end of um chapter 21 in insofar as i mean it talks about the parents try to discipline um this son but don't get anywhere and i wonder if this comes back to jeff's question about kind of to what extent church um oversight should be involved in various things i mean surely this son, his parents wouldn't be the only people who are aware of what he's doing. And so is there not an injunction on a community, you know, as they see um, not just an ox, but a son going stray, you know, should they not get um, involved, try and restore him to his parents, try and sort of speak to the whole family about what's um, going on and, and so on. So that there should, I mean, the whole community is involved in his um, stoning. And so it would seem to make sense if the whole community should be um seeking his restoration long before it comes to that yeah i think that's i think that's right the and the uh, one of the things that one of the phrases that's repeated here is i think it's translated in different ways verse one says you pay no attention to the sheep or ox that's straying away uh, verse uh you're not allowed to neglect them in verse three you you see an, a donkey or an ox fallen and pay no attention all of those are the same phrase and each of them is hide yourself from. So it's, you know, the, like it's a, found this really convicting <laughs> passage to think about. So you, you see a need, you see a danger, an animal or human being in danger. The fact that you see them imposes certain obligations on you, at least within the community of brothers. Let's, let's, let's restrict it to that. Uh, that's, that's what this is addressed to. You see your brother's ox or sheep. But the fact that you're aware that this that this problem exists, that there is this animal wandering, or the fact that there's this animal or, or this person wandering away or in need, to hide yourself from that is what these verses repeatedly forbid Israel to do. They're not allowed to pretend like they didn't see it. They're not allowed to do nothing. You see an animal wandering, and you could just say, well, I'm sure somebody will pick that animal up at some point. That's not allowed. Much, I mean, obviously, you can't take the animal, slaughter it, butcher it, uh, you know, hide the evidence. Can't do that. But you also can't just ignore it. Uh, you find something that, that belongs to your neighbor. You can't ignore that, even if you don't know who it belongs to. There's an obligation just by running across some need, running across something that's lost, that requires you to do this. What again? The the Good Samaritan comes to mind as the as Jesus' parabolic example of this. The, the Good Samaritan comes across the body and doesn't just pass on the other side, doesn't ignore it, doesn't pretend he doesn't see, uh, doesn't move on expecting somebody else to deal with it. Uh, he takes actions and does exactly, in fact, does exactly what this commandment requires. He doesn't just take the man, but he takes him 
uh, to an inn. He takes them to a home so that he can be restored. So there's a there's a pretty direct parallel between the Good Samaritan and this law. And then I think you know we could we could go Augustinian here and allegorize from there. Jesus is the Good Samaritan. Jesus finds us suffering, uh, robbed, nearly dead by the road, and he cares for us. Takes us to the end of the church, as Augustine says, so we can be restored. Uh, and uh, the one who finds the lost and brings them back in the Good Samaritan parables, optimally Jesus. And indirectly, we could say that there's a there's a kind of Christological illusion in Deuteronomy 22 as well. I think we should also just reflect upon the common movement from animal to person within the law. Um, we can see this in, for instance, the parable that's given by Nathan to David, where the law concerning the restitution for the stolen um, sheep is applied to David's sons, but David casts judgment concerning himself. We can think also of the way that key characters within the narrative have animal names, Rachel as you or Hamor as he ass, and the way in which um, Callum Carmichael has commented upon the symbolic use of animals within the case law. Um, of course, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, is it with oxen that God is concerned? Um, in the law concerning the muzzled ox treading out the grain. These laws analogize human beings and animals. Of course, the whole sacrificial system is based upon that analogy and connection between human beings and animals. We can see even in punishments for in closely related passage in um, the case law in Exodus, where the goring ox is put to death by stoning. Um, suggesting that there is a connection between the ox that's put to death by stoning for his act of goring and the father who does not keep his son in and keep controls upon a wayward son that's causing damage or even loss of life to others. And so that deeper connection is one that I think lies beneath a lot of the movements that we see in passages like this. Yeah, that's yeah, that's a as you said, it's a pretty basic um, assumption of a lot of the law, uh, including the liturgical law, as you pointed out. Oh, can I can I offer one last uh, suggested kind of allegorical typological dimension? Start wondering about uh, this: I Israel as the wandering ox, Israel as the wandering sheep, uh, Israel's like sheep that have gone astray. That's true in the days of Ahab. It's true in the days of Jesus. Who is the good Samaritan that finds the flock of Israel wandering or fallen and takes them to a safe house until the owner returns? It seems to me that there's a, a, a at least a, the shape of this law resembles what happens to Israel in exile. Israel wanders, Israel goes away from her owner. She wanders away and is taken into safekeeping by these Gentile rulers who care for Israel, care for the care for the ox and the sheep until until it's time to send them back home until the owner comes and finds them and they are taken back to the taken back to the land. What do you think? Plausible, implausible, outlandish? Absolutely true. That's those are your choices. <laughs> You're not giving us much middle ground. <laughs> I mean, I was thinking in a slightly different direction. I mean, it, it seems interesting to me that you've got the contrast between, I mean, if, if we're thinking of Israel as a um, uh, a wandering ox or something, I mean, it sort of brings to mind the start of um, Isaiah. I can't remember it now exactly, but, you know, the ox um, knows its owner, you know, the donkey is, is master or, or whatever, but Israel does does not know. So, so she, she's like the ox, but in a, in a more lost state and then we have Saul who can't find his father's donkeys and and turns out to be um, an awful king unable to restore Israel meanwhile he can keep um his family's sheep and and goes and and seeks those uh, those who are lost and it, it seems a uh quite a striking analogy of good and bad kings in in that regard are we also to see in the language of Deuteronomy 32 Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. You grew fat, stout and sleek. Then he forsook God who made him and scoffed at the rock of his salvation, etc. There's the wayward son of Israel, but also described in language that's evocative of the 
oxen that's um, growing up and becoming the untamed beast that is causing damage. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.